This is Breaking the Rules, a show for mental health professionals designed to help you build confidence in treating obsessive compulsive disorder. I'm Dr. Celine Galgich, and I'm a clinical psychologist who works extensively with OCD. And I'm Dr. Victoria Miller, but you can call me Tori. And I'm a clinical psychologist who works with young people, including those with OCD. Through our shared professional experience, we've found that effective treatment of OCD requires commitment, creativity, and the recognition that things can sometimes get a little messy. They sure can. We want to empower clinicians to be able to work with their patients in new ways to treat OCD with confidence. Today, we're chatting with the lovely Emily Crawford. Em is an educational and developmental psychologist who has over 20 years experience supporting adults, children, adolescents and their families with a wide range of mental health issues. Emily has always been passionate about working at a systemic level and engaging with parents to support their children. She uses a range of tailored approaches to support her clients. She's also a tuning into kids facilitator and a mother of four young children. In this episode, we talk with Emily all about the great topic of meltdowns. You're going to love hearing Emily talk about what parents can do when their child is melting down, as well as why it's so hard for us all to keep our cool while this is happening. We also have a really interesting discussion about the different kinds of parenting that there are, as well as what flipping your lid means. Let's get started. Em, hello. Hi, Tori. (laughs) Welcome. It's so great to have you. It's great to be here. We've been really looking forward to interviewing you because I've had the pleasure of knowing you for quite a number of years now. And I've just been always really interested in the work that you've done in relation to tuning into kids and about supporting teens and families. And Celine and I both agree that this would be a really great opportunity to meet with you to talk more about all things meltdown and disruptive and challenging behaviors and big emotions that we know that all kids experience and particularly kids with OCD. So it's really outstanding you can be with us today. I'm very happy to be here. It's like being back in Melbourne, but all the way over here in Perth. (laughs) (laughs) Looking forward to getting stuck into this one. The best place to start is probably, and why don't you tell us just a little bit about yourself? I've been a psychologist about 20 years, which makes me very old. And my background, I guess, has largely been with kids and adolescents. So I've worked in schools and independent schools in Melbourne, where I was really lucky to work in a team of psychologists and get to work with heaps of great psychologists and psychiatrists as well, privately in the area and kind of supporting kids and young people in schools, but also doing lots of work with parents, which was great. I'm now in private practice. I moved back to Perth because that's where I'm from originally with my four little kids. So I've got two girls and two boys aged 12 and under. I've got a lot of skin in the game of meltdowns, (laughs) lots of examples I could draw from even this morning. So I'm over here working in private practice, doing that kind of more intensive one-on-one with kids. But I've also found that my practice has moved more into work with parents and young mums, which I actually find really for kids kind of under 10, that is hugely influential. I feel like you can make a huge impact on kids. And it reminds me of Livin used to always say to us that parents are the tool, they're the strategy. And that can be really intimidating for some parents, but it's actually really powerful. You have this incredible power to just with a few things with your fully formed brain to be able to just change a few things at home and actually really settle down things for a kid and really make lots of change. Particularly, I mean, if I had a dollar, I guess, for every conversation I have around meltdowns and helping parents to understand them developmentally and help to approach them 
in a different way, I could retire. Like it really is the cornerstone of, it's usually what parents present with, I guess. It's the reason often kids get to us and then it's the thing parents want help with. It's the crisis point. But really, it's just the symptom. It's the part of that iceberg, I guess, that breaches the water. But then there's all this other stuff sitting under and that's where the work is. And once you understand that, the meltdowns almost take care of themselves. So that's my journey. And along the way, I got to do an amazing program, which I still do here in Perth, called Tuning Into Kids, which is out of the University of Melbourne, which is really exciting because it's highly researched and it's local because often a lot of our stuff can be American or from overseas. So to have something that's local and uses our language and our research is fabulous. And it's a mixture of sort of emotion coaching, which is Gottman's work, which a lot of people would have read about, sometimes particularly related to relationships, but he does amazing stuff around emotional intelligence. And then all Sophie having her work, which is incredible too. I've got to say, doing that program, people all come in wanting to work on their kids melting down and poor behavior and explosive behavior. And what you find is that over the course of that tuning into kids and actually understanding about their feelings and emotions, like I said before, the meltdowns kind of take care of themselves once parents understand kind of what's going on, the science of it, I guess. I think it takes a special kind of love or passion or whatever you want to call it to want to work with young people and families there's a lot involved in that picture isn't it because you're working often in that system in terms of it's not just the young person it's everything else that kind of goes with it what drew you to want to work with young people well the one thing I think I love most about kids is their just honesty so in a way they (laughs) give you the true uncensored snapshot of what is going on in a family and then the parents come in and (laughs) you get the same information but slightly polished and just the early intervention element I guess that the fact that you can make some changes early on and you're working with one child in a family but it changes for every child in that family and for some it's these parents also having light bulb moments around their own childhood that's a big part of it too understanding why they respond to meltdowns in the way they do or why it's so anxiety provoking or which behaviors they can tolerate in their kids and which they can't and why. And so you're emotion coaching the kids, but you're actually emotion coaching the parents too. And everyone's growing. And so it's also the hardest bit because I think you're balancing. It's like you've got all these plates and all this rapport. So you've got to keep everyone, you've got, you've got a relationship with everyone and managing confidentiality and keeping that. So it's not always easy, but when it works, it's very rewarding. And you're an incredibly playful practitioner as well. I think there's something about working as a psychologist, which can be incredibly creative and playful. And I think that that's a really fun aspect of working with kids and families and parents. I mean, it's not exclusive as I think Selena, you and I have talked about before is that we should all be playing throughout our life. Play is a form of self-care. But I think when I think of you, Em, and the work that you do, I often think of play and creativity. I mean, I laugh a lot. (laughs) And I can laugh at myself, which I think you really have to be able to do working with children. But yeah, look, certainly, and you've got to be really flexible and adaptable because kids will call you out. Kids will say they don't want to do things and you've got to think of a different way and a different kind of, you're always thinking of different directions to explain things or to get a kid on side and to understand something and work with you. You really have to think outside the square. Yeah. Square box. I don't know what you're saying. (laughs) Whatever. Depends on the client. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Why don't you tell us about meltdowns then? I mean, when we use the term meltdowns, we're talking about big emotional reactions, aren't we? And I think you're right. That's also been mine, and I'm sure, Celine, your experience too, that oftentimes parents are very alarmed by meltdowns and don't see it as these large expressions of emotion as being a part of typical development. I think people are 
often very alarmed by them. And it gets judged as bad behavior or being naughty or bad parenting. Yeah. And that's what's going on, isn't it? I mean, when I was talking about that meta emotion, that feeling about your feelings, sometimes when your kid is out of control, you feel like this dual process going on, the child is out of control and you're getting less regulated because say you're embarrassed or you feel like you're not making headway, you're making it bigger, you're making it worse. Look, I was thinking when we talked about meltdowns, I was thinking, what would be the one takeaway that like, what would be the one thing that I would want parents to understand about a meltdown? And I thought, like the best tool that you can access in that moment is empathy because there's so many different reasons that a child's got to meltdown point. So the two things would be empathy. So trying to understand that when a child is in meltdown, they're completely out of control. Like they feel terrible. Like you wouldn't be them for quids and they're stuck. So they can't regulate themselves down. They're stuck right up there. They've got huge feelings going on. It's come from something real, but it could be so many different things. And so sometimes trying to work out what's caused the meltdown. And sometimes you're going to do that retrospectively. Sometimes you might be like, what was that? Where did that come from? And so I guess that's the first. So it could be a sensory thing. So if you've got a kid, say, who does struggle with OCD, they may have been worrying about something and been wanting to be able to complete their compulsion or compensate and not being able to. So that's getting more and more, or they could be feeling really anxious at the time because it's a Sunday night. And so they're needing to do the ritual over and over again, and they're not getting the sense of completion and you're getting frustrated because you're tired for work and everything's kind of growing that it might all be good until finally we just see the last bit of it. So when you say, okay, enough's enough, get to bed because you're just kind of over it. And then we see a big explosion. And so the general rule, if you think about like what a meltdown is, I think is if you're going to direct a parent to something or a great thing to think about is that kind of concept of the kind of the flipped lid. Yeah, I love this concept. Do you want to take us through it? Yeah. So in terms of thinking about, and I'm going to have to describe this because just listening to me, the concept of imagining your fist and you put your thumb inside your fist, how you're taught not to punch, ironic, <laughs> when we're talking about meltdowns. You break your thumb. But imagining that sort of your wrist is the brain stem. So that's the part of all the automatic parts of your brain, like sleeping and walking and all of those sorts of things. And then inside, we have the feeling part of our brain, which is our amygdala, which is like the alarm part of our system. And then over the top, we've got our thinking part of our brain. So our prefrontal cortex, which is the part that tells us like, that's not a good idea. Let's not do that. I can think about what the consequence will be. I can problem solve this a little bit better than just losing my cool. But what happens when this kind of feeling part of our brain kicks off? It's like the whole thinking part of our brain just goes offline. And this is all of us. This isn't just little people. Little people might flip quicker than us. But certainly if you've ever seen an adult really losing it or you've been very anxious about something and really lost it, we do the same thing. So, you know, that's that feeling where I don't care what I say. I don't care if I swear at someone. I don't care. We talk about all moral reasoning going out the door. And how quickly a child flips that lid is there's a whole range of temperamental issues and what's going on for them will depend. So if you've got a child with OCD who is feeling very anxious, that lid is almost half flipped a lot of the time. So it doesn't take much for it to flip right off. If you've got a kid who's not very emotionally reactive, they may take longer to do it and it might go up more slowly. Whereas other kids, parents will say they just went from zero to 100. And so what we need to do is that when that lid is flipped, There's no point talking to kids, lecturing kids, disciplining kids, trying to understand what just happened or why it happened. In that moment, we know the quickest way to get your kid back online and to calm the whole situation down is just empathy. So that's just getting close to them, saying, I know this is tough. 
mum's going to sit here. They might say, go away. You say, that's okay. Mum's going to be here though when you're ready to make sure you're safe. I'll just sit outside your room. It's going to be okay. Trying to say, I know how frustrated you are. It's going to be okay. The next thing is just proximity is quite important. And so this is with kids, primary age kids and littler. It's a little bit different with adolescents. They need a slightly different thing. And the last thing is, so get close, not very much language and just lots of empathy. That's all you need to do. Some kids, if they'll let you hold them, you should hold them. They often find that that kind of close sensory tactile stuff really settles them down. And they say even rocking them back and forth, not back and forward, but side to side and the brain to calm their bodies down. With adults, a little bit different. They say almost no language. Stop talking, be quiet. And it's very hard when we're elevated and they're elevated to not be just talking the whole way down the hall behind them about that they've just clocked their sister or they've smashed the Lego or they've flipped the table and done something, particularly if there are other people around. There's often this urge to have to like not put up with this in front of everyone and take a stand and talk the whole way down. And I think also there are a lot of expectations that because a teenager is older, should be wiser, should have more impulse control, often I think parents are lured into this idea of wanting to really talk it through and get a rationale for what their thinking was and what were you thinking? I wasn't, actually. If I had a dollar for every year eight boy that I've seen a deputy's office bawling their eyes out and they'll say, why did you turn on the fire extinguisher? Why did you jump out <laughs> the mass window? <laughs> no idea. Two things fired in my brain and it was done. Yeah. Please don't tell my mum. Please don't call my mum. I'll never forget like this one time I was collecting data for my doctoral thesis and so was working in primary schools. And this little boy got, had gotten sent to the principal's office. I can still hear that principal yelling from like the other side of the building. And it was a massive building at this poor child who was just bawling his eyes out, not knowing why he did what he did. And just like, I was scared to go in and say something because I was like, oh my God, what if I get yelled at yes. here? Well, it takes <laughs> us back to that state, isn't it? It of does. Like, schools do that to you. You know, you get called into the principal's they office really and you're do. like, what is this about? What have I done? Yeah, it was just awful. Yeah, so it's an interesting one in terms of, yeah, so just the empathy, no language, and just being close to them as close as they'll kind of allow you until they come back down. And then you have the conversations later because 99.9% .9 of kids feel awful after a meltdown and are embarrassed and are ashamed and are a bit mortified about what they've done when they're right up in that escalated state. And that you can actually inadvertently escalate them further and they'll double down if you try to intervene in the wrong way in that moment. So you've just got to really keep your own lid unflipped. It's like a storm and the idea is to get out of the way of the storm. That's the most containing thing you can do in that moment. I think what we don't always hold in mind also is that to come back online for that prefrontal cortex to be back online, actually that we dip down first, even though we're, we might be quiet or kids might be seemingly calmer, their thinking actually isn't back online yet. They might need a snack a nap, a hug, a drink, they might need a bath, you know, they might need a bit of time before their brains are really back online. And so, yeah, so as soon as often, I think we're too quick to want to get in there as soon as they're calm or quiet, sort of talk about what, you know, what was that all about? But actually it takes a bit of time for that brain to really reestablish itself. 
And it's okay as a parent to say, you know what, we're going to have a talk about this later once everyone goes. Just kind of put a marker under it and say, we'll talk about this later and go from there. And an interesting little fact that would be good for parents to know that I remember Sophie having her saying that boys and girls generally, this is a stereotype, that they've got different amounts of time they take to come back online. So they say girls take around five minutes and boys take around 20. That's females, males, I should say. And they think the reasoning for that is, is because traditionally when we really flip our lid or when that fight, flight, freeze, traditionally, biologically, we would have been being attacked, a life-threatening situation that women have to go back to the caretaking quite quickly, whereas men have to stay up to make sure that the group is safe. And so that we sometimes have different times that we're ready to come back and be able to talk about how we're feeling about something and that we just have to give each other as much space. And kids temperamentally will be different. Some kids are like, go up very quick, but then they're all over it. And other kids will still be thinking about it a day or two later. I think the hardest thing is I'm going to play devil's advocate here because I'm just thinking about parents I've worked with and all the rest of it going, if I do that, am I not letting them get away with it? Again, it's these judgments that they often come up with. And parents, I think, really struggle with this notion of, again, coming back to their own triggers of, Am I being a bad parent? Am I being judged by others? Feeling ashamed themselves, thinking that they're doing a bad job, thinking that letting their kids get away with bad behavior. And I think we need to spend a lot of time kind of breaking down some of those stigmas and understanding from the parents' perspectives their own hurdles to help them with that process. And I think too, because sometimes it's this struggle of giving your child space to be able to come back online to have that conversation to engage in repair. But then at the same time, if we don't and we go in too quickly, then kids' defenses go up, they can use humor to deflect or they can up it again and off they go again. And it just becomes this huge cycle and everyone's stuck. And I think it's about saying to them, well, a couple of things, like what's the goal? What do we actually want here? So you want them to learn why that's not the way to do it. We want to learn that for them to be able to kind of use strategies earlier before the meltdown. So that's one of the things you talk to parents about, about tuning into those feelings before they become the meltdown. That's kind of key. And also then, because often they will have had, well, when I was little, I would have got a clip under the ear if I'd done that, or my parents would never have put up with that. There was just no discussion saying, but how did that feel? And then getting them to actually go back into that child self, well, like, it used to make me really mad or I just felt like no one listened to me. And you're like, well, you want your kids to have a different experience, don't you? So that's what this is about, is that we know there's a different way of doing it. All this discussion around the defences and the shame thing makes me think of is the experience for kids and young people with OCD and how what it looks like on the outside is sort of disobedience or aggression or oppositionality, whereas that beautiful model, the iceberg, the idea of the iceberg is that what you see is aggression or avoidance or just being really difficult and challenging. But what is underneath that is a huge amount of fear, distress, shame, embarrassment, disgust, all of these really, really hard to deal with emotions. Not a lot of thinking and not a lot of impulse control. And I think sometimes we can be too reactive to see just the externalized behavior, just the representation of emotion. And that's, I think, brings back to that idea that you were talking about before about holding in mind the importance of empathy and compassion and curiosity about what is underneath the behavior, seeing the behavior as a communication rather than a problem to be dealt with. And that there's some unmet need or something going on under there. There's actually something going underneath. The behavior is just the symptom of what's actually going on underneath. And it's interesting talking about from that sort of OCD perspective that also that more anxious you get, the more rigid you often get in that state. And so I need then the irritability, I need to finish, I need to compensate here and do the ritual and nobody getting it. 
but also feeling irritable, not just with the parent who's trying to interrupt that, but also I'm so angry I have to do this. But then the fear is so great of this obsession that you might be fear to yourself or fear to your family that there's so much stuff going on that the fear of not doing the ritual is a sensory overwhelm. There's so much going on. Like where else does it go when you've got a developing brain than into a big meltdown, like a loss of control because you can't control anything. And I think that's where the rigidity comes from is the need to get back into that idea of having control, control of emotions, control of environment. And I think parents can get stuck in that idea of it then seeing it as a power struggle rather than what we're talking about, which is actually see that as a way of your child saying to you, something's not right here. And then going, what's actually going on here? What is this about? And I mean, that's the whole kind of concept around trying to avoid the meltdowns or circumvent the meltdown by trying to tune into your kids at a much, much lower level. So rather than here, just when that's starting to lift. So when they so to visually describe that. Rather than flipping the lid, yeah. Yes, when the lid's just starting to come off at the corner and you can see they're starting to get unregulated, which might be you can notice they're not really listening or they're kind of looking hypervigilant or they're not listening to something you're asking them to do or you can see they're starting to sort of circle back to their room or doing stuck in their heads. It can be the set of your shoulders. You'll know your own kids in terms of what those things are, what's going on for each of them. So, for example, my daughter likes to come when she starts to get anxious. She starts needing a lot of hugs before we go into school. And that's the, I'm like, okay, here we go. (laughs) And there's a real part of you that wants to ignore it. Do you know what I mean? Like, oh, no, because you start to get this, oh, gosh, here we go. She's going to say she doesn't want to go to school or she's going to say that she's stressed. And then what happens is, is we try to, oh, no, we just do that kind of dismissive style of parenting that Gottman talks about. And there's no criticism with the dismissive style. So they talk about there being sort of these four styles of parenting. There's the dismissive, which is the feeling comes up and you kind of tell them, don't worry about it. You love school. You'll be fine. Most of us were raised within a dismissive family with a dismissive parenting style. It's not a bad thing. And I've got to say, when I learned about the parenting styles, I thought I was a really good parent because I'm a psychologist. And I just got lower and lower and lower in my seat in this training <laughs> as I suddenly realized that I'm a very, very warm and kind highly dismissive parent. (laughs) It's that whole thing of like, if you go to school, you love school, you'll be fine when you get there. Don't worry about it. After school, what about I can put your biscuit in your lunch? You know, that kind of bribery, the distraction, the marrying them along. And we do that because we like think, oh, if I start talking about the feeling, it's going to make it bigger. If I sit down and say, hey, are you okay? What's going on? That we think will make it so big, it'll grow it. But it's like a Jedi mind trick. It has the opposite effect. When someone empathizes with our feelings, it contains us. Say for a child with OCD, if you can get in earlier when you see they're starting to get unregulated and say you're trying to do your ERP, you're much more likely to be able to empathize with the feeling but still help interrupt the ritual with them than when you ignore the feeling and it grows and it grows and then that ritual has to be done no matter what and stuff the plan I've got with Tori or Celine, not happening. We're going to do it and we're going to do it five times this time. And so this kind of concept of trying to, if we can tune in lower, we've got much more chance of getting their brain at a point where we can kind of keep them contained and be able to do what they, so they're in their stretch zone, out of their comfort zone, in their stretch zone, but not in their out of control meltdown zone. You would agree that the most powerful work happens to be out of challenging all of that OCDs. What are some of the other styles of parenting for those that might be interested? You could just Google this. There's heaps out there. and It is really interesting. So the dismissive one's the one that I'm a former user of. 
<laughs> and raised within and was very invisible to me. I just thought I was very kind and loved doing things to distract my Positive, positive. Uh, positive. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it is disapproving. So this is the one where you kind of criticise your kids a little bit for their feelings. So you might be like, come on, you're carrying on, you're being a brat, let's stop crying, don't be a baby. Those are, so taking the feeling and then moralising a little bit. Come on, stop carrying on like a pork chop. Dismissive, just to back up, can also be humour. Sometimes humour can be very dismissive if you don't use it just the right way. And so timing on that is important. So there's disapproving. That one is probably the one that has the worst outcomes for mental health and those sorts of things for kids. Then there is laissez-faire, which is every feeling is acceptable, but I don't set any boundaries. So that might be that you got really angry and you just had a huge meltdown and you trashed your room and that's okay because you're angry. Whereas that's when I talk about sort of allowing things to play out with parents, it's not about not setting boundaries. You just set the boundaries later and you say, okay, well, now we've got to go and clean up that room together or we're going to rebuild the Lego you just smashed up or work with natural consequences. And how will we do that next time? And just engaging them on the problem solving of it, saying, what can we do? Not just me telling you what we're going to do. Laser FM might be like, I know you're so anxious, you don't need to go to school. I know you're really anxious. We can just drop out of that. And so sometimes it might be you've just got to do one more. It might be too far to say you've got to finish hockey for the term or the year. It might be like, well, how about we do two more sessions rather you just never have to go back and you never have to see the team and you never have to tell them how you feel about it because you feel anxious. So that one's very uncontaining. Yeah, I think we see a lot of that when we see families who come to us and are like, how did we get here? Because they've been enabling the whole way. And we often talk about the message that that sends is saying, I don't think you can cope with these feelings as well as then not knowing even what kind of boundaries to set because the emotions are so big and no one's really understanding what's going on in that moment or even what's going on for the young person. And it's really interesting to dovetail back into that kind of meta emotion that I talked about, your feelings, about your feelings. So like you'll often see families, so say where a parent's had a highly critical controlling parent and they felt very sort of gagged and repressed and they, they hated that experience or found it challenging and then they go the other way with their kids. And yes, and so then they're a bit like, well, I never want them to feel bad. I, I can't tolerate their feelings. I hate them being anxious. I want to make that go away. But then they don't allow them to have manic, get some of those distress tolerance skills. And I think we also see parents as well who have trouble setting limits because they're afraid of the outburst that might come as a consequence of setting limits. And so they're afraid of the distress or having to manage child feeling disappointed, upset, being rejecting. Or even threatening things like, I'm going to hurt myself really scary things as well. And I mean, that is often, I think that's a way of telling parents that's how bad this feels. And also it forgets that then over time, it creates this sort of secondary game where everything stops very quickly when you say that. And then you get a breather from whatever the stress is or the thing that is stressing you out. So what's the fourth end? The fourth is emotion coaching. So that's the one we should all be doing. And (laughs) the good news about emotion coaching is you only have to do it. This is the best stat I've ever learned as a parent and as a psychologist is you only have to emotion coach 30% of the time for it to be effective. So sometimes you can say, everyone just get in the car. I don't care how you feel, which (laughs) I've seen them said that as a psychologist. (laughs) I always say that's not out of the Nest playbook, some of my parenting. That's definitely not advice I give. So emotion coaching is basically you tune into the low-level feeling so you notice it in your kids a bit earlier, you help them name it because kids are not, especially little kids, they're not born with a natural language 
around emotions, we teach them that. And so you say, you know, are you feeling frustrated? So say if Lola, that's my little girl, was giving me those cuddles in the morning, I might pull her onto my lap and say, is everything okay? You don't seem okay. And she might say, I don't want to go to school or I'm going to miss you. And I would say, I know, I know you miss me. I really miss you when you go to school too. But you know what? We've got to go to school every day. And then you sort of just sit with it. And it's really hard. Our job as psychologists is to sit with feelings all day. So we should, our skill level at that should be professional. But when it's your own child, it's really tricky just to sit there and allow this feeling to be there. And then do you know what? Often you never don't need to go any further in that emotion coaching. It actually, then they're good to go. And trying to understand that as an adult to be like, well, actually sometimes when someone just sits and listens to me talk about a stress I have at work, I don't need them then to provide me with like a five dot point plan on what I need to say to my boss. I just feel better because they listened and they sort of shared my outrage or said my feelings were valid and you're still a good person. And then I'm able to get on with my day. And it's the same for our kids. And so, but I think there's so much logistics in parents. We're straight into problem solving. We're always on the move. Tick, tick, tick. And we're trying to take their distress away. Yeah. We're trying to solve it for them. We're trying to extinguish discomfort. Yeah. It comes from a place of love. It does. Our kids are actually really good at sitting with discomfort if they can have that experience validated and shared and held. And then often you say, well, what could we do? And then often they come up with these solutions that you would never have provided. Dude, it might be like, what about I just take this and I'll just keep it in my bag today? And I say, like, oh, I would never have thought of that. I was ready to write a letter to the teacher and you know, <laughs> we get a baby Chino on the way to school. <laughs> so sometimes the things we provide are not even the things that they need. But more often than not, just the containing is just the sitting with the feeling with them and the empathy, you know, just to be there and say, I get it. And what we know is that that builds connection with our kids and trust. And the more we do that, the better that process gets and the more we actually see the meltdowns go down over time. And I think the larger extension of that is them building confidence in knowing that you can hold their emotions no matter how big they get and they start coming to you with things because there's safety, there's trust to help them understand their world and what's going on. And I think that is the end goal is really what you want to strive towards as a parent to know that no matter what your child is going through, they can come to you because you're going to be able to hold it rather than judge the experience or punish them for an experience. Yeah. And that every time they problem solve and you help them name a feeling, their EQ grows. And we know now that EQ is the greatest predictor of life success. And that's what everybody wants for their kids and for their clients. Because the research says if you meet a teenager and they can describe negative emotions in a more nuanced way, so they know the difference between disappointment and anger and jealousy and all the different ones, they can therefore better problem solve them because the way I manage my anger is quite different to how I might manage jealousy or disappointment or sadness. And if young people can do that, they're less likely to develop depression because they know what they're feeling and they know what to do. And it's nothing to be frightened of. It's nothing to push down. It's just there and it's going to pass. And we can do this if it doesn't pass. It's a really, really different message, isn't it? When you understand meltdowns from this perspective to like where we started, that idea of meltdowns being a form of disobedience. It's really this... Or manipulative. That's a big one. Yeah. Yes, that's a huge one. It's really different, isn't it? And they're moments for relationships to grow, aren't they? Em, what is something you now know that you wish you had known earlier in your career? I think how important it is to work with parents. I think early in your career, it's really intimidating. It's really easy to work with kids. 
and you do all your work there and you make a really good rapport with them and then you kind of see the parents and you feel like a bit of an imposter. That's just me, but do you know what I mean? No, it's funny you're saying this. I had a supervision session this morning with one of my supervisees and that's exactly what we talked about. (laughs) And the other thing is that I used to think this was all like, because when you sort of talk about these concepts, they sound really simple to the point that parents will be like, that's not going to work. And I always say, just hang on a minute, just try it. And they always come back and go, it was like, wow, like I did not think. (laughs) That's like a Jedi mind trick. I wasn't expecting that. So this simple stuff, not all parents know. When I tell you that I went and learned this stuff and I'd already been a parent and I was 10 years, I'd been working for 10 years before I had my kids, that I was trying things that I'd never heard of that seemed very simple and they changed things enormously. So don't presume that parents know this stuff. Yeah, I can relate to that as well. And then the other question that we ask everyone is, we know with OCD that obsessions and intrusive thoughts are a big part of the pathology, but we also know that they are part of just being a human. Do you have any particular intrusive thoughts you might like to share on a quest to normalize the intrusive thought experience? Definitely. I can remember, particularly when I was growing up, I can remember having thoughts about like needing to do things to keep the house safe. So when I was growing up, like I would have to do up my school bag at night and that would mean the house was all locked and safe. (laughs) And I used to always need to count the tiles everywhere and I would have to guess if it was an odd and an even and then it had to be an odd. And then if it wasn't an odd, I'd have to like find more tiles in the room to make it an odd. (laughs) So yeah, I think mine would have been about safety. I had a big sort of stranger danger thing. So that would have been my intrusive thought. And even now I need to have a light on if my husband's away, always quite safe in an Uber. And it all started, that intrusive kind of thought was like, I think I was that kid in year three that had the stranger danger talk. And it stuck with you? Or like to the point that I wouldn't like walk. 200 metres down the road. Do you know what I mean? I would still say I would be one of those people that would probably never be attacked because I've got my keys in my hand. And <laughs> and your pepper spray. But I've never had anything that's remotely unsafe happen to me, but it's an intrusive thought for me that comes in around safety. I remember that after uh, the stop, drop and roll. Oh, yes. Lesson fire? from the fire department. Yes. That was the one that yeah. stuck with me. Yeah. I remember the stop, look and listen <laughs> when it was crossing the road. Yeah. Yes. I just feel like the messaging for kids sometimes is like. (laughs) Which makes me freak out about COVID happening and all the hand washing messaging that young kids got. Oh, yes. And what that's going to do in five, 10 years' time. Oh, absolutely. And there's actually one more thing I have to add that I didn't add that I feel that I will get off and be like, why didn't I say that? About development, because I think development of meltdowns is really important. And I gave the example of the boys letting off fire extinguishers, not just boys, girls do really silly things too, is to remember that their prefrontal cortex is under construction so that you'll see bigger flip outs. And also because their feeling part of their brain is the first part developed and the thinking part is the last, you see these massive meltdowns in our year sevens and eights and we can be very intolerant of them and shame them. But really what's happening is they're having these huge surges of feelings and that that creates these big meltdowns and that they need our empathy just as much as when they were three or four. Even young adults, because that part of the brain you're talking about doesn't stop developing until the age of 25. That's a lot of development that happens. We even need to bring in that same level of empathy with... Well, with each other as well. And each other as adults, yeah. And with ourselves, because sometimes we really lose it at home. Little kids really can trigger us and hold up the mirror and to realise that when we're in that elevated state and then to go back later and to say, yeah, I lost it and this is why and I'll do better. 
Em, this has been absolutely amazing and it's nice to be able to talk about this because I think a lot of the time, like we were talking about, meltdowns are so misconstrued. I think the more we can shed light on it and the more we can talk about it, whether your child is battling with OCD or your adult child or your partner, or it's changing the language, but you can even use some of this stuff with partners in your life. I would challenge you when your partner's having a bit of a meltdown to apply the empathy, get close, no language, and see what impact that has on an adult. It's exactly the same thing. So you can use it with everyone always. It's just a wonderful skill to have and to learn in dealing with the challenges of life. So thank you so much for your words of wisdom. It's been amazing. Thank you. Good to see you. Good to have a little virtual trip to Melbourne. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Em. <laughs> All right. Thanks, guys. You've been listening to Breaking the Rules, a show for mental health professionals designed to help you build confidence in treating obsessive compulsive disorder. This podcast is brought to you by Melbourne Wellbeing Group, a psychology practice based in Melbourne with a special focus on treating OCD. To find out more, head to our website, melbournewellbeinggroup.com.au. All one word, that's melbournewellbeinggroup.com.au. This podcast was made with strategy and production support from Wavelength Creative. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Breaking the Rules, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Celine Galgetch. And I'm Tori Miller. And we'll be back next episode with more reasons to convince you to get messy. Have fun. And break the rules. rules. <laughs>